The Return by R. Murray Gilchrist Five minutes ago I drew the window curtain aside and let the mellow sunset light contend with the glare from the girandoles. Below lay the orchard of Vernon Garth, rich in heavily flowered fruit trees, yonder a medlar, here a pear, next a quince. And as my eyes, unaccustomed to the day, blinked rapidly, the recollection came of a scene forty-five years past, and once more beneath the oldest tree stood the girl I loved, mischievously plucking yarrow, and despite its evil omen, twining the snowy clusters in her black hair. Again, her coquettish words rang in my ears, Make me thy lady, make me the richest woman in England, and I promise thee we shall be the happiest of God's creatures. And I remembered how the mad thirst for gold filled me, how I trusted in her fidelity, and without reasoning or even telling her that I would conquer fortune for her sake, I kissed her sadly and passed into the world. Then followed a complete silence, until the star of Europe, the greatest diamond discovered in modern times, lay in my hand. A rough, unpolished stone, not unlike the lumps of spar I had often seen lying on the sandy lanes of my native county. This should be Rose's own, and all the others that clanked so melodiously in their leather bolts should go towards fulfilling her ambition. Rich and happy I should be soon, and should I not marry an untitled gentlewoman sweet in her prime? The twenty years' interval of work and sleep was like a fading dream, for I was going home. The knowledge thrilled me so that my nerves were strung tight as iron ropes and I laughed like a young boy. And it was all because my home was to be in Rose Pascal's arms. I crossed the sea and posted straight for Hawkton Village. The old hostelry was crowded. Jane Hopgarth, who I remembered a ruddy-faced child, stood on the box-edged terrace, curtsying in matronly fashion to the departing mail coach. A change in the signboard drew my eye. The white lilies had been painted over with a mitre, and the name changed from the Pascal Arms to the Lord Bishop. Angrily aghast at this disloyalty, I cross-questioned the ostlers who hurried to and fro, but failing to obtain any coherent reply, I was fain to content myself with a mental denunciation of the times. At last I saw bow-legged Jeffreys, now bent double with age, sinning himself at his favourite place, the side of the horse trough, As of old, he was chewing a straw. No sign of recognition came over his face as he gazed at me, and I was shocked, because I wished to impart some of my gladness to a fellow creature. I went to him, and after trying in vain to make him speak, held forth a gold coin. He rose instantly, grabbed it with palsied fingers, and muttering that the hounds were starting, hurried from my presence. Feeling half sad, I crossed to the churchyard, and gazed through the grated windows of the Pascal burial chamber at the recumbent and undisturbed effigies of Geoffrey Pascal, gentleman, of Breton Hall, and Margot Maltrevor, his wife, with their quaint epitaph about a perfect marriage enduring for ever. Then, after noting the rankness of the docks and nettles, I crossed the worn stile, and with footsteps surprisingly fleet, passed towards the stretch of moorland at whose further end stands Breton Hall. Twilight had fallen ere I reached the cottage at the entrance of the park. This was in a ruinous condition. Here and there, sheaves in the thatched roof had parted and formed crevices through which smoke filtered. Some of the tiny windows had been walled up, and even where the glass remained, snake-like ivy hindered any light from falling into their thick recesses. The door stood open, although the evening was chill. 
As I approached, the heavy autumnal dew shook down from the firs and fell upon my shoulders. A bat, swooping in an undulation, struck between my eyes and fell to the grass, moaning querulously. I entered. A withered woman sat beside the peat fire. She held a pair of steel knitting needles which she moved without cessation. There was no thread on them, and when they clicked, her lips twitched as if she had counted. Some time passed before I recognised Rose's foster mother, Elizabeth Carless. The rusted colour of her cheeks had faded and left a sickly grey. Those sunken, dimmed eyes were utterly unlike the bright black orbs that had danced so mirthfully. Her stature, too, had shrunk. I was struck with wonder. Elizabeth could not be more than fifty-six years old. I'd been away twenty years. Rose was fifteen when I left her, and I'd heard Elizabeth say that she was only twenty-one at the time of her darling's weaning. But what a change! She had such an air of weary grief that my heart grew sick. Advancing to her side, I touched her arm. She turned, but neither spoke nor seemed aware of my presence. Soon, however, she rose, and helping herself along by grasping the scanty furniture, tottered to a window and peered out. Her right hand crept to her throat. She untied the string of her gown and took from her bosom a pomander set in a battered silver case. I cried out. Rose had loved that toy in her childhood. Thousands of times we'd played ball with it. Elizabeth held it to her mouth and mumbled to it, as if it were a baby's hand. Maddened with impatience, I caught her shoulder and roughly bade her say where I should find Rose. But something awoke in her eyes, and she shrank away to the other side of the house place. I followed. She cowered on the floor, looking at me with a strange horror. Her lips began to move, but they made no sound. Only when I crossed to the threshold did she rise, and then her head moved wildly from side to side, and her hands pressed close to her breast, as if the pain there were too great to endure. I ran from the place, not daring to look back. In a few minutes I reached the balustraded wall of the hall garden. The vegetation there was wonderfully luxuriant. As of old, the great blue and white Canterbury bells grew thickly, and those curious flowers to which tradition has given the name of Mary's heart still spread their creamy tendrils and blood-coloured bloom on every hand. But Pascal's dribble, the tiny spring whose water pulsed so fiercely as it emerged from the earth, had long since burst its bounds and converted the winter garden into a swamp where a miniature forest of Queen of the Meadow filled the air with a melancholy sweetness. The house looked as if no careful hand had touched it for years. The elements had played havoc with its orioles, and many of the latticed frames hung on single shit hinges. The curtain of the blue parlour hung outside, draggled and faded, and half hidden by a thick growth of bindweed. With an almost savage force, I raised my arm high above my head and brought my fist down upon the central panel of the door. There was no need for such violence, for the decayed fastenings made no resistance, and some of the rotten boards fell to the ground. As I entered the hall and saw the ancient furniture, once so fondly kept, now mildewed and crumbling to dust, quick sobs burst from my throat. Rose's spinet stood beside the door of the withdrawing room. How many carols had we sung to its music? As I passed, my foot struck one of the legs and the rickety structure groaned as if it were coming to pieces. 
I thrust out my hand to steady it, but at my touch the velvet covering of the lid came off and the tiny gilt ornaments rattled downwards. The moon was just rising and only half her disc was visible over the distant edge of the hell garden. The light in the room was very uncertain, yet I could see that the keys of the instrument were stained brown and bound together with thick cobwebs. Whilst I stood beside it, I felt an overpowering desire to play a country ballad with an overword of Willow Browbound. The words, in strict accordance with the melody, are merry and sad by turns, at one time filled with light happiness, at another bitter as the voice of one bereaved forever of joy. So I cleared off the spiders and began to strike the keys with my forefinger. Many were dumb, and when I struck them gave forth no sound save a peculiar sigh. But still the melody rhythmed as distinctly as if a low voice crooned it out of the darkness. Wearied with bitterness, I turned away. By now the full moonlight pierced the window and quivered on the floor. As I gazed on the tremulous pattern, it changed into quaint devices of hearts, daggers, rings, and a thousand tokens more. All of a sudden, another object glided amongst them so quickly that I wondered whether my eyes had been at fault. A tiny satin shoe, stained crimson across the lappets. A revulsion of feeling came to my soul and drove away all my fear. I'd seen that selfsame shoe, white and unsoiled, twenty years before, when vain, vain rose danced amongst her reapers at the harvest home. And my voice cried out in ecstasy, Rose, heart of mine, delight of all the world's delights. And she stood before me, wondering, amazed, alas, so changed. The red and yellow silk shawl still covered her shoulders, her hair still hung in those eldritch curls. But the beautiful face had grown wan and tired, and across her, fore her forehead lines were drawn like silver threads. She threw her arms around my neck, and pressing her bosom heavily on mine, sobbed so piteously that I grew afraid for her, and drew back the long masses of hair which had fallen forward, and kissed again and again those lips that were too lovely for simile. Never came a word of chiding from them. Love, she said, when she had regained her breath, the past struggle was sharp and torturing. The future struggle will be crueler still. What a great love yours was, to wait and trust for so long. Would that mine had been as powerful. Poor, weak heart that could not endure. The tones of a wild fear throbbed through all her speech, strongly yet with insufficient power to prevent her feeling the tenderness of those moments. Often... Timorously raising her head from my shoulder, she looked about and then turned with a soft, inarticulate and glad murmur to hide her face on my bosom. I spoke fervently. I told her of the years spent away from her, how, when working in the diamond field, she'd ever been ever present in my fancy, how at night her name had fallen from my lips in my only prayer, how I had dreamed of her amongst the greatest in the land, the richest, and I dare swear the loveliest woman in the world. I grew warmer still. All the gladness which had been constrained for so long now burst wildly from my lips. A myriad of rich ideas resolved into words which, being spoken, wove one long and delicious fit of passion. As we stood together, the moon brightened and filled the chamber with a light like the days. The ridges of the surrounding moorland stood out in sharp relief. Rose drank in my declarations thirstily, but soon interrupted me with a heavy sigh. Come away, she said softly. 
I no longer live in this house. You must stay with me tonight. This place is so wretched now. For time that in you and me has only strengthened love has wrought much ruin here. Half leaning on me, she led me from the precincts of Breton Hall. We walked in silence over the waste that crowns the valley of the White Lands, and being near the verge of the rocks, saw the great pine wood sloping downwards, lightened near us by the moon, but soon lost in density. Along the mysterious line where the light changed into gloom, intricate shadows of withered summer bracken struck and receded in a mimic battle. Before us lay the priest's cliff. The moon was veiled by a grove of elms, whose ever-swaying branches alternately increased and lessened her brightness. This was a place of notoriety, a veritable Golgotha, a haunt fit only for demons. Murder and theft had been punished here, and to this day fireside stories are told of evil women dancing round that druid circle, carrying hearts plucked from gibbeted bodies. Rose, I whispered, why have you brought me here? She made no reply, but pressed her head more closely to my shoulder. Scarce had my lips closed, ere a sound like the hiss of a half-strangled snake vibrated among the trees. It grew louder and louder. A monstrous shadow hovered above. Rose from my bosom murmured, Love is strong as death. Love is strong as death. I locked her in my arms, so tightly that she grew breathless. Hold me, she panted. You are strong. A cold hand touched our foreheads, so that benumbed we sank together to the ground to fall instantly into a dreamless slumber. When I awoke, the grey, clear light of early morning had spread over the country. Beyond the hell garden, the sun was just bursting through the clouds and had already spread a long golden haze along the horizon. The babbling of the streamlet that runs down to Hulkton was so distinct that it seemed almost at my side, and how sweetly the wild thyme smelt. Filled with the most tender recollections of the night, and without turning, I called Rose Pascal from her sleep. Sweetheart, sweetheart, waken, waken, waken! See how glad the world looks, see the omens of a happy future. No answer came. I sat up and looking round me saw that I was alone. A square stone lay near, and when the sun was high, I crept to read the inscription carved thereon. Here, at four cross paths, lieth, with a stake through the bosom, the body of Rose Pascal, who, in her sixteenth year, willfully cast away the life God gave. <laughs>